Support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life, and that's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully so you can be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. A delight to have you with me this week. Thanks for joining in here toward the end of February. Well, that was a really fun last week's podcast with special guest Kevin Kelly, whom I interviewed at Motley Fool One San Francisco. And uh, what a wonderful opportunity to speak to somebody who thinks deeply about your future and mine, where the world is headed. And especially for us as rule breakers, let's try to get our dollars in alignment with that as best as we can see. So, thinking forward with your money is very rule breakery. And it was a delight to circle back with a great. I'm not even going to say a capital F fool. I do think Kevin Kelly's very capital F foolish himself uh, last week. So, this week, now for something completely different. We're going to go to a series that I'm going to call this the third in the series. So, the series is kind of got to know the lingo, investment lingo. It's about the educate part of the Motley Fool's credo to educate, to amuse, and to enrich. It is my delight every week to try to do all three, but in particular this week, we're going to go with the educate capital E part by looking at some of the terms. That's what we do in the series, looking at some of the terms that you might hear about and not fully understand or some new oncoming terms to get you thinking about the language of investing, business, and maybe technology as well, to get you smarter about these concepts. Now, I have three special guests. If you're a Motley Fool podcast fan, you'll recognize all of these voices as regular performers in front of the public. As we set up the stage every week for all of our Motley Fool podcasts, you're going to recognize these stars, and I'm delighted to have each of them join me. And each has prepared two terms, so we're going to go through six terms this week on Rule Breaker Investing. And for each of my guests, they've brought one simpler one and one more advanced one. So we're going to go with the three simpler first, have a halftime show, and then we'll come back with our three more advanced. Now, I guess it wouldn't be one of my podcasts if we didn't have some light game element. We have to gamify this a little bit. So please keep score of your performance as you listen to this at home or while jogging or driving. For each of the simple terms, give yourself two points if you know it, if you already knew it, and one point if you're just learning it, if you've learned, listened and learned. And then for the advanced ones, it's going to be five for already knowing it, and two if you're just learning at this podcast. So, feel free to keep score. Tweet it out, maybe, at RBI Podcast. Let us know your score after this week's podcast. I should mention, since this is the third in the series, if you're interested in going back and hearing the first two, The Language of Investing. That's what we called our podcast on February 3rd of 2016, The Language of Investing. We didn't have the gotta-know-the-lingo Name at that point, but that definitely looking backward is volume one. And then last year, March 8th, 2017, got to know the lingo. That'll be volume two. So this is volume three. I also want to mention that we have a special delight at the end of this podcast. We're going to review five stocks that I picked on this podcast a year ago, five stocks the world really needs right now. So hang with us, and you're going to find out whether the world needed these stocks or not, how they're doing one year later. All right, without further ado, let me introduce my first guest, my good friend, longtime Motley Fool co conspirator, Robert Brokamp. Hello, David. Robert, what a delight to have you. 
Um, of course, a lot of us know you from Motley Fool Answers, but I know you for your outstanding work for two decades on behalf of all kinds of investors at Fool.com, in particular, people who are getting started or people who are getting ended. Uh, <laughs> and without being too silly about that, you, you, you have an outstanding way of speaking to people who are just beginning to get started investing, but also running our Rule Your Retirement service and a lot of articles about retirement as well. Robert, thanks for joining. It's my pleasure, David. So, what is term number one this week? Term number one is 529 Savings Plan. And it's a term some folks probably heard. It's named after a section of the tax code, another exciting way to, to, to name your various things. Um, it's sponsored by states, but usually run or at least co run by a financial services firm. It's usually meant for saving for college, but there's a new twist that we'll get to in a second. You don't have to participate in your own state's plan, but if you do, you might be able to get some sort of a benefit. 35 states offer a tax deduction on the state income tax return if you participate in your state's plan. So that's definitely the first place to look if you're interested. The great benefit of a 529 savings plan is that the money grows tax-free as long as you use it for qualified higher education expenses, meaning college. But thanks to the new tax law that was just passed, up to $10,000 can be taken out for qualified elementary or secondary school expenses, tax-free. A lot of people are very excited about this. One thing that we should note, though, is that the new tax law just said you could do that for, in terms of federal free taxes. Not all the states are on board yet with this, so before you take money out to pay for elementary or secondary school, check with your state to see what the tax status of that is going to be. And when I check with my state, am I just basically Googling my state 529 savings plan? Yes. And really, the best resource for information about 529s is a website called savingforcollege.com. And they're pretty good at updating the rules, but you definitely want to just Google your state's just say, you know, your state treatment of 529 savings plan. Do it as Google News because then you'll get the most recent article on that. Robert, is 529 something that you've put into play with your own family? Yes, each of my kids has a 529 savings plan. Um, and now that I have three kids who are teenagers, we're getting to the point now where I'm actually going to have to tap these accounts. So it's becoming all too real. It is becoming all too real. And there's a whole art to that, too, in terms of how you invest it. One of the, the potential drawbacks of a 529 savings plan is that when you participate in the plan, it's sort of like your 401k at work in that you only can choose from among a selection of mutual funds. You cannot invest in individual stocks in a 529 savings plan, which I know is disappointing for a lot of Motley Fool listeners. For those who really want to pick individual stocks, I would suggest that you consider the Coverdell Education Savings Account. It's got a much lower contribution limit of only $2,000. Are you previewing your more advanced term later? Is Coverdell coming back, Robert? Uh, Well, no, I think the Coverdell is a good supplement because you can do both. But the good thing about 529 savings plans is that they virtually have no contribution limit. So you can pretty much put in as much as you need to pay for a kid's college savings. All right. Robert, would you use that term in a, in a sentence? Yes, and here it is. If as soon as your child is born, you open up a 529 savings plan, contribute $200 a month, and earn 8% a year, the account will be worth approximately $100,000 by the time your kid turns 18. Robert, I was thinking you would bring a silly sentence, but that one was pretty straightforward and educational. Well, yeah, no, it's very, it's very surprising for such thing to come from me, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you very much, Robert Brokamp, for getting us kicked off on Gotta Know the Lingo, Volume 3. There's 529 Savings Plan. Again, fellow rule breakers, if you feel like you already knew that one, give yourself two. If you learned something from what Robert just shared, give yourself one. 
And next up, my friend Abby Mallon. I know Abby from my Motley Fool Stock Advisor team, but also Motley Fool Hidden Gems and a lot of other work throughout the company. Abby, how long have you been now at The Fool? It's about two and a half years, almost three. That's pretty awesome. A delight yeah. to have you, and thank you for rejoining with me. You've been on Rule Breaker Investing before. You're a familiar voice to anybody who listens to Motley Fool podcasts. And uh, is Chris Hill really as nice a guy behind the scenes as he purports to be in front of crowds? Yes, in front of crowds, he always, you know, manages it very well. Right, right. Behind the scenes. He's a little bit more of a jokester. A little bit more of a jokester. Okay. Well, that's good to know. And these are the kinds of insights that I think each of us tunes into each week to this podcast to hear. Thank you, Abby. But slightly more seriously, what is term number two? Term number two is customer lifetime value. So um, we use this term a lot around Full HQ, both internally and when we look at companies. And it is the present value of the projected revenue attributed to the entire future relationship with a customer. LTV is the acronym a lot of people use in the field. Lifetime value. Mm-hmm. So, roughly, Abby, when is this appropriate to use or look at? What kinds of businesses? Um, certainly, subscription revenue uh, businesses, but also businesses that aren't necessarily subscriptions but have high um, order frequency and repeat orders. Yes. Now, um, for companies that are subscription businesses, if I'm listening to a quarterly earnings report or conference call. Would this typically be a phrase that I would hear? Um, uh, yeah, occasionally you will hear this. Um, typically, co- or companies tend to highlight it when it moves in a positive direction, not necessarily a negative direction, but it definitely influences a lot of decision making. What are a few companies that you follow that would typically be using lifetime value? And um, I, it's not necessarily my consistent experience that companies would put it right out there, like what the number is. Right. But what are some companies that you think make a good use of this tool? Um, I think one that's maybe a little bit, um, not necessarily so explicit, like you said, but definitely something to watch would be Starbucks. You know, they have a high high margin, high frequency of orders, and really long customer relationships, which sort of offsets that really low price per drink. Um, I think it's one to watch there. That's kind of interesting. I think conversely, on the flip side, somewhere you maybe wouldn't see it or wouldn't want to look at this metric is maybe like a mattress company. People only buy mattresses every five to ten years, and it's not really um, so relevant there. So, do you think Starbucks, because we talked earlier about how lifetime value is typically used by subscription companies, and it it might almost be fair to say I do subscribe to Starbucks with the frequency and regularity of my visits. Maybe you too, uh, but it is not technically a subscription company. But do you think that Starbucks is sitting back there with their computers dialed in and knows basically exactly how much you and I have ever spent at Starbucks? And projecting forward, you're significantly younger. You look like a more attractive <laughs> candidate as a lifetime value Starbucks customer than I am. But do you think that they're that numerical about it? Um, I absolutely think that they are. And when you look at their um App for the phone. I think, you know, that is a perfect way to track all of those frequency and values, and um, especially over time. So, lifetime value is a tool that enables companies to make probably better and better decisions about how to allocate their dollars, to whom to advertise, or what areas or what times of life, and not to all focused on LTV. Yeah, Abby, do you feel prepared to use LTV in a sentence? Um, yeah, I could use this in a sentence. Great. One company that I think uses lifetime value very strategically would be the New York Times. We've seen them have sort of a tremendous comeback in the past one or two years, and I think um, this is one where you've seen their customer lifetime value probably grow over the past year as they institute higher prices and um, continue to increase their value for customers. 
That was uh, that was an amazing sentence that definitely had a semicolon or two, and <laughs> I think it was off the cuff, which was most impressive, Abby. And I agree. Not only that, but you've previewed one of the five stocks that I a year ago said the world really needs right now. So we'll be reviewing later in the podcast how New York Times stock has done. Abby Mallon, thank you very much. We're going to have you back with the advanced term in a little bit. That was term number two. All right, so term number one, 529 savings plan. Term number two, customer lifetime value or LTV. Again, if you feel like I already knew lifetime value, I work every day slogging through LTV numbers, then go ahead and give yourself two points. If you're just learning it for the first time, give yourself one point. Now, there's a little bit of controversy already in this podcast because my producer, Rick Engdahl, practically reached through the glass a few minutes ago off air and said, Dave, Shouldn't we be giving them more points if they're learning it? So, for, for now, I'm going to say, I don't know, Rick. I'm going to say this. Go ahead and give yourself two plus one points, three points, if you feel like it's more important to you to show that you learn and score bigger. Then, yes, it will confuse what's put out there on Twitter after this podcast, because I know everyone's going to go right to Twitter and say, at RBI Podcast, here's how many points I had. And we might see some inflated scores because of the controversy, but this one may not get resolved this podcast. We might have to hash it out of our mailbag next week or if anybody has strong opinions. All right, it's time for term number three and guest number three, and Sarah Priestley who a lot of us know. If you're a regular industry-focused listener, I certainly am. Sarah's work in energy and the industrials is a delight every week. Sarah, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to have you. and uh, This is our first time that we're getting to experience each other in the podcast studio. And Sarah, you've already made a confession. <laughs> You've described yourself as quote a quote consummate over preparer. Yes, I lose quote. a lot of uh, efficient productivity time by over preparing for pretty much everything. So. And and that was like an apology that Sarah gave us. She walked in and and I think all of us, Rick and Robert and Abby, all of us agreed that we don't have enough over preparation at Full HQ. So this is maybe the future of our company: diligence, people who actually work hard and do great work. So. Sarah, a delight to have you join with me. And what is term number three? So I'm going to kind of squeeze three terms into one. This is this is definitely innovative. <laughs> uh, and do uh, upstream, midstream, and downstream for in the oil industry because I see a lot of people using it all the time, and often people within the industry don't actually know what falls into these definitions. Now I might already be one of those that's not going to be able to award myself the two points for being smart about this because I feel like if even people in the industry don't get this right, Sarah, I don't even want to take a guess at it. <laughs> other than we're talking about. Um, how energy reaches us, at what stage uh, it's channeling, where it's coming from. Let's start with upstream. Absolutely. So, upstream is sometimes called the exploration and production sector, uh, or referred to as EMP. So, the segment in the industry finds and extracts crude oil um, and natural gas. And so, they do the geological surveys, they apply for the permits and leases, uh, they search for underground and underwater reserves, and they drill the exploratory wells. But they also are responsible for actually, once they've found those, uh, managing and operating the wells that will then bring the crude oil to the ground. Now, what is it about the phrase upstream that, that denotes that? So, essentially, the closer you are to the end consumer, the further downstream that you are. Uh, so, essentially, you're, you're furthest away, you're, you're at the upstream. Thank you very much. I've had some very bad upstream stock picks in the last few years, Sarah. As <laughs> A lot the, of people have. As the oil price, uh, some of my, especially my underwater explorers and others, it's, it hasn't been a great time. Although the last six months, it seems like energy and the oil price has been picking up around seventy dollars 
a barrel for Absolutely. a little while there. So that's been interesting. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of opportunity there because, as you said, people have been fleeing um, the the area, the the sector, and it's it's definitely a high risk, high reward element of the oil industry. I think if you want a, a more medium low risk, then the midstream, which we're going to talk about next, is definitely where you'd want to allocate your dollars. Midstream. Uh, so midstream. Uh, is essentially the segment that includes all the infrastructure that's needed to move unrefined oil and gas over long distances. So this is pipelines, pumping stations, terminals, rail tank cars, tanker ships, and trucks. So it's, it covers a huge amount, and it also bleeds into uh, upstream and downstream, depending on kind of the company that you're talking about and things like that. And uh, given the commercial success of U.S. shale, which we saw kind of boom 2012, 2014, and we, we, we've seen the whole <laughs> uh, result of that with the collapse of oil prices, um, midstream has become more important. You've got the Eagle Ford and Permian Basin. They're, they're in Texas, so they're close to refineries. But um, a lot of the deposits, Marcellus in the Appalachian ba Basin, uh, South Dakota, Colorado, Nebraska, Wyoming, very, very far. So you're talking thousands of miles. Mm. I think I did. I not read that. Thanks to shale, the U.S. is poised to become the world's number one oil producer. Absolutely, yeah. I couldn't have expected that ten or twenty years ago when Absolutely I first not. started the Motley Fool. Sarah, how long have you been at the Motley Fool? Uh, almost two years. Not very long. I'm still a baby. <laughs> it's, it's a delight to have you. Let's go to downstream. Uh, so downstream refers to companies that refine crude oil and transform that into raw, raw material, which we use for a myriad of useful substances. Uh, so the one that comes obviously straight to mind is petroleum for our cars, or not your car, mm -hmm. <laughs> much more green. Mm -hmm. uh, but they own oil refineries and petrochemical plants, distributors, and retail outlets. So this part of the chain is crucial to a lot of different industries. You know, uh, petrochemicals are used to make rubber, asphalt, fertilizers, uh, a lot of things that people don't consider. Um, and downstream is a margin business. So you're essentially hedging on the difference between what you can sell the refined products for for what you bought the crude oil for, um, mm. which means it tends to do well, actually, in a low crude oil environment. Sarah, what's an example? Um, I didn't speak to Midstream. I should briefly say I've also made at least one pretty bad stock pick, Midstream, because uh, Kinder Morgan has been a, a real underperformer, despite an attractive-looking dividend a few years ago when I first picked it. But what is a, a downstream company or two that is of note? Uh, so, Philip 66 and Valero are two that kind of spring to mind. Um, and I can definitely empathize in the midstream sector, but I would say that uh, TransCanada looks great right now with the boom of liquid natural gas. So, if you're bullish on that, then. Awesome. Sarah, are you prepared to use one or more of your three terms that you somehow made one term <laughs> in, in, a, in a single sentence or three? Yes, I'm actually going to call myself out. I'm completely guilty uh, of not being very accessible. So, in last week's energy show, energy show, I said rising profits upstream from crude oil sales, but narrowing downstream margins. And what I meant by that was that the uh, extractors are experiencing boom, booming profits because obviously they're getting more per barrel of crude oil, and downstream they're being pressured because, as I said, the, uh, downstream tends to do well in a low crude oil environment, as these prices come up, you can't necessarily recover all those costs from the marketplace so quickly. It has to be kind of a slow uh, increase. Um, so, yeah, it's pressuring margins of the refineries. Sarah Priestley, that was awesome. Thank you very much. Now, there's going to be some more controversy about how to score our own personal performance, because on the face of it, if you feel like you already knew those terms, and I don't think I could say that I did, but if you did, you would get two points. And if you learned from Sarah, you would get one. But you've learned up to three terms, arguably, from Sarah. So I'm going to say that you can give yourself three points if you already knew all three. And if you learned, then go ahead and give yourself two points. But if you're part of the Rick Engdahl school, then go ahead and give yourself 
three points on top of that, so give yourself five points. And if anybody is even still counting points, then you are a better fool than I. No, quite seriously, we're going to keep keeping score. Thank you very much, Sarah. All right, as part of our halftime festivities, support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Well, Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple. It allows you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. And I will note, as I will continue to do so in passing since I learned this fact, they're too humble to mention this in their ad, but Rocket Mortgage is the number one mortgage provider in the United States of America by market share, even bigger than Wells Fargo. So impressive for Dan Gilbert and his company, Quicken Loans Rocket Mortgage. All right. Now, earlier in this podcast, I did promise at this point, the midpoint, we would have a halftime show. Robert, what do you have for us? Uh, a wardrobe malfunction. How's a that? wardrobe <laughs> malfunction. So that's something that's really only available for the people watching this podcast on video. I'm going to apologize right now to you if you're only listening to this on iTunes, Spotify, or one of those podcast sites. But Robert, a remarkable wardrobe malfunction. Thank you so much for sharing that uh, for our video watchers. <laughs> All right. It, it is now the end of halftime. So we've covered three of our six terms this week on Gotta Know the Lingo, Volume Three. We're now moving to our more advanced terms. So for each of these and each of my guest stars, they're going to be bringing a little bit more lumber. So, go ahead and give yourself five points if you already felt like you knew these terms, or two points if you're learning them along with me. Robert, what is term number four? It is asset location. So, not asset allocation, but asset location. So, I feel like you're either being cute with a play on words here, or this is, this is a, a hardcore phrase. This is a real thing. Okay, okay, so I think a lot of us would say we know asset allocation, where you're putting your dollars, how right. you're doling them out, some to this stock or some to bonds and not stocks or whatever yep. it is. It's how you're allocating your assets. Let's talk about location then. Okay, so you've decided how much to have in various assets which investments you're going to buy. The next decision you have to make is in which accounts. You might have a taxable brokerage account. You might have a traditional IRA. You might have a Roth IRA. You might even have a Coverdell or some other type of account. Each different account has different tax characteristics. And each of your investments has tax characteristics. I see where you're headed here. So, determining which investments should go in which accounts is the art of asset location. So, Robert, this immediately begs the question, how many accounts either do you have or do you think we should have? Or, what is the average number of accounts held by an American, if you know something like so, that answer? The last I've heard, the average person has between four and eight accounts. And that depends on, first of all, whether you're single or if you're married and if you have kids, because, as we discussed, if you have kids, then you probably have some other accounts. But you probably have your 401k at work, you probably have an IRA, you might have a 401k at a previous job, and then you have your spouse's account. So, we have multiple accounts that you have to make these decisions about in which investment should they go in. Robert, what would be a typical example of an awesome asset location? And then, what would be a typical mistake made by people who don't listen to this podcast and learn important concepts like asset location? Okay, so 
there are a few key principles of it, and one of it is basically to rank your investments and invest investment strategies according to tax inefficiency. And then you take the investments or strategies that really would cost you a lot in taxes and make sure those go in your IRAs and 401ks. As an example, let's say you own an actively managed mutual fund that has a lot of turnover. In other words, the fund manager is doing a lot of buying and selling, generating a lot of taxes. It It happens. happens. I probably don't want to own that fund, but it does happen. Right. So, if you have one of those, you should put it in your IRA or your 401k. Compare that to, let's say, you buy a stock that you plan to hold for decades, and it doesn't pay a dividend. You can own that stock for 30 years, and you'll never pay a penny of taxes on that until you sell. And then when you sell, you'll pay long-term capital gains, which is a lower rate than what you'd pay if you were taking that stock out of your traditional IRA. So that's one example of how you would take a look at your investments and decide in which type of account they should go in. When you, since you asked for a mistake, one mistake people make is they think, okay, I'm just making the decision between the taxable account and the IRA. But they then don't compare whether what they should put into the traditional IRA in the Roth, assuming they have that. What you should do is take a look at your investments and think, which investments do I think have the highest potential return? Of course, you never really know. But generally speaking, you might think, okay, this collection of stocks is probably going to outearn this other collection of stocks. Maybe, for example, five stocks the world really needs right now. A perfect example, Dave. All right, good, perfect good. example. I'm with you now. You would put the ones that you think have the highest potential in the Roth, because the Roth is the account that when you take the money out in retirement, it's tax-free. That's the best account. So that's the account you want to grow the most. And you would use your traditional 401k IRA for investments that still will be growing, but that you don't expect to grow as much. It might be just your standard index fund, or it might be your bond fund, or something like that. All right. Robert, before I let you go, I want to make it clear. Plus five points if you already felt like you knew asset location, and in this case, practice it well. Because I don't think you should give yourself five points if you knew it, but you're not doing a good job with it. Two points if you're learning it for the first time. Robert, before I let you go, would you please use that in a sentence? Yes. According to one study, investors can increase their after-tax wealth by as much as 15% by practicing smart asset location. Excellent. And speaking of smart, I think the Motley Fool Answers podcast makes a lot of often new fools, but sometimes dyed-in-the-wool fools smarter every week. Robert, do you want to come on? I mean, there's an unlimited opportunity right now to promote something about the Answers podcast that maybe is up up and coming, or give us a little insight into Allison's personal life that you would never do so. <laughs> Throw us a bone, Robert Brokham, is what I'm trying to say. Allison is an open book, so she does, she does not hold back on the show. Let me tell you that much. I will say in the upcoming show, what we have what we used to do is answer a listener question in the beginning of each show, uh-huh. and then get into what we call the meat of the podcast. We've now switched it so that the first three episodes of every month. We cover the latest, some things we've read about in the news, as well as some media topic. And then the last episode of each month is our listener mailbag, and that will be our next episode. So, the last episode every month, that's where get ready to send in your questions, and we'll try to answer them on the air. Awesome. Thank you very much, Robert Brokamp, for your and Allison's wonderful work with Molly Flancers. All right. Well, it's time for Abby Mallon. Abby, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So, you are going to bring a term here in our more advanced portion of the show, that does relate to the initial term that you brought. So, briefly reviewing, term number one was 529 savings plan, term number two, customer lifetime value, number three, Sarah bringing upstream, midstream, downstream, Robert just threw down asset location as term number four. Abby, what is term number five? 
Term number five is customer acquisition cost. So this relates pretty well to my first term, which was customer lifetime value. Um, customer acquisition cost is the amount that the company spends to attract one new customer. Yes. Now, LTV is an acronym that people often use for your first term. Have you seen CAC out there? Do people say the CAC? Um, I don't see it as commonly, <laughs> but I know in my own notes I abbreviate it that way, but I don't know if it's like an industry standard. And so, customer acquisition cost uh, is, again, often in there for subscription businesses like The Motley Fool. That's something that we use here at The Motley Fool. We ask, how much does it cost us to find a new fool, whether we're advertising on the internet or baking in all the costs of any given business. Now, we used Starbucks earlier as an example. Do you want to use Starbucks as an example of this one, or do you have another company or insight in mind here? Um, well, I think one that's kind of interesting, um, a lot of new IPOs have sort of centered around these subscription businesses. So. Um, one that sort of jumps to mind is Blue Apron. And I think at the time that they filed their IPO, management estimated that customer acquisition cost was about $94 per customer. And we've seen that stock really struggle um, since they went public. And analysts have come out and said that they think that number is more around like 400 Wow. Yeah. I have to admit, I'm aware of Blue Apron. I haven't followed it that much. I have heard some, I think, appropriately bearish commentary, maybe from you, but certainly some Motley Fool analysts about that. It's not a stock that we've picked in Motley Fool Rule Breakers or Stock Advisor, but the company may have undershot its own estimate of the acquisition cost of its customers by four times? Well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So, the general formula for calculating customer acquisition cost is sales and marketing expense attributed to new customers divided by net new customer count. And so, it really depends what they consider a new customer versus um, active versus inactive. So, it can depend and vary based on um, what you consider a new customer versus just retaining or um, re-enticing customers to order another box. Yeah. Now, I have to believe that for digital businesses, it's going to be a little bit easier to make this calculation. I think at The Motley Fool, we have a pretty clear sense of what it would be for any given quarter. Or, more importantly, who cares about our company? How about Netflix, a great stock for a lot of us? Netflix, it seems, does a pretty good job talking about its acquisition cost and measuring definitely. that. Is it fair to say that digital businesses probably have it easier? Um, I definitely think digital businesses have it easier. I would think internally, most companies sort of have this on lock, but it's a matter of, you know, when you're an analyst and you're only reading um, transcripts or 10Ks or 10Qs or whatever it is, um, sometimes you have to make a little bit of assumptions. Awesome. Here. Abby, are you ready to use customer acquisition cost in a sentence? Yeah, can you do that? Yeah. All right, go for it. Now, is this going to be one that you've written down ahead of time, or are you off the cuff just killing it with another? <laughs> Long but educational sentence. Well, to be honest, all of my sentences included my examples of companies, so this is off the cuff. Awesome. But I can Good. Go for it. Wing it. Um, so I guess connecting my two ideas. Oftentimes, in um, when we think about subscription companies, we like to look at ratios. So customer lifetime value to customer acquisition cost. So LTV divided by CAC. Um, Typically, that's a ratio that we like to look at, just especially as it trends over time. And our goal is that that ideal ratio should be about three to one. So, lifetime value of a customer should be three times the size of the acquisition cost. And um, if it's less than that, that means the company is spending too much. And if it's more than that, it means they're spending too little. Period. Full stop. Again, <laughs> a good good uses of semicolons, uh, but 
much more seriously, Abby, that's really helpful. So mm-hmm. that ratio, three to one, um, kind of what you're shooting for as a Golden business. Golden ratio. Golden ratio. Abby Mallon, thank you very much. Would you like to promote any aspect of your own work coming up in the next month? Are there any stocks that you're researching that you can talk about behind the scenes for our services? Or maybe you're going to be on Market Foolery and you're going to say something later this week. Um, our Hidden Gems rec is coming out on Thursday, so I'm excited for that. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Abby. Thanks for having me. All right. So, as we get ready for our final term, term number six, do tot up your score in your mind. Remember, plus five if you'd already known customer acquisition costs, maybe even knew Abby's golden ratio. In fact, give yourself one more if you knew Abby's golden ratio. Six, I didn't. Uh, If you just learned that term for the first time, please do go ahead and give yourself two points. Although, if you're in the Rick Engdahl School of Scoring, that actually might be worth seven, not just two or three. So, I know you have a specific idea of your score in mind, and that's going to be important because, Sarah Priestley, you've got term number six for us. What is it? Uh, Inventory turnover. Inventory turnover. The way that you said it with your British accent, it sounded almost like infantry turnover, <laughs> which which would be a very bad thing, don't you think? Yeah, apparently I don't enunciate. No, inventory. no, you you do great, but infantry turnover would be would be troubling. It would be very troubling. That's something that we're not looking to promote or do or make mm-hmm. happen at this show. No, uh, more seriously, Sarah, inventory turnover. I got it. Um, define it. Uh, so it's an efficiency ratio. It measures the rate a company purchases and then resells products to customers in its most simple form. That's what it is. And you can work it out one of two ways. One is market value of sales divided by ending inventory or cost of goods sold divided by average inventory. And this is uh, what I would say is the preferred metric because average inventory accounts for seasonal fluctuations. Uh, so if you're, you know, Canada Goose, for example, which is heavily reliant on the winter season, it sells big Parker coats, um, then you're going to want to rule out. You're going to want to flatten some of those peaks and drops. All right. So you've already given us two ways to think about it or calculate it. I want to take a step back. For those of us who didn't have an accounting course or don't work in this field full time, this is a more advanced term or concept. And Sarah, when we talk about inventory turnover, why would we bother measuring that? What is the usefulness of that if you're looking at financial statements or thinking about a business? Absolutely. So uh, I like to use it, especially within the industry that I cover on the Industry Focus Show. Uh, we look a lot of at industrials companies, and it's hugely important to see how well a especially in manufacturing, your production planning is. Um, So, a low inventory turnover implies weak sales. So, this could be due to a poor performing product line, bad marketing, production bottlenecks. But the issue with this is it leads to excess inventory. So, for any business that handles any physical item, excess inventory is a bad thing because there's a holding cost to all inventory. Uh, In manufacturing, it's work in progress, and that capital could be better allocated elsewhere. In retail, especially fashion retail, once you've gone past the season, those items become obsolete, and you have to reduce the margin. Uh, So, a high turnover then, conversely, generally implies good sales and and efficient production planning. It also means that the company is at less risk of being stuck with a load of inventory, um, and that they're replenishing their cash quickly. And they, these tend to be the companies that are more responsive to changes in customer demand. They're, they tend to be more nimble. Now, I know we have a lot of entrepreneurs listening to this podcast, and a lot of you obviously are familiar in thinking about inventory turnover. A big story of the last 20 years has just been that you have to have more inventory if you have a bricks and mortar store or if you have a physical presence you're required to have more inventory um, and if you do if you're Walmart or something else you want to get as good as possible at identifying what should be on the shelves and turn over as fast as possible so again i know a lot of entrepreneurs are going to be familiar with this concept but for those who aren't 
Sarah, I know that you came to us from Rolls Royce, right? Yes, absolutely. So, yeah, we use the metric a lot. It was something that I was driven to um, on the shop floor uh, to kind of make sure that we had, they call it turns, so you want um, as many turns per possible as qu- per quarter per year. And what would it, what would it be for a, 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 an automobile company? For an automobile company, I was actually looking at these figures before I came in. For my example, um, I think and a, and a, a great example is Ford. I think they had like I think they had 10.9 turns per quarter, so that equates to something around six days. So it takes them six days to take one item from nothing, create it, and ship it to the customer. Which sounds remarkable to me, and makes me think my Ford shares should be doing better than they have over the last five years. Yeah, it's all that debt, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but the important thing, as you know, you mentioned that uh, Walmart would want extremely fast turnover, and then it's slightly different for automobile manufacturing companies. So you have to apply it to the context of the industry. It has to be apples to apples. So don't compare automotive to grocer if you're trying to make an investment decision. It is all relative. I guess looking even more broadly, like over the last century, is it a fair generalization to say that inventory turns have gotten faster? Just in business because of all of the logistics we have today and the digital. Absolutely, definitely, and uh, in, in manufacturing, uh, which you know I keep harking on about, but in manufacturing particularly, the rise of kind of just in time and Lean Six Sigma has really revolutionised how quickly we can expedite things out to the customer. And as you quite rightly said, digital—the thing that it has enabled us to do—is just get so quick with the supply chain. Uh, and one thing to really focus on with this is. You know, if you if you're looking at inventory turnover and it seems like they have a, a exceptionally good inventory turnover, so they turn over a lot of stuff very quickly. Um, one thing to note is that that could be a bad sign because it could mean that they have poor pr- uh, purchasing planning. So it, if they're leaving money on the table by essentially every time that they supply the end retailer, it sells out straight straight away. Then maybe we need to address that too. Right, I see that. So that if uh, the shelves are bare because people keep buying the stuff and they're not supplying enough, it might look great from an inventory turnover standpoint, but not a very good business. Absolutely. Yep. Sarah, are you prepared to use this in the final sentence for this week's podcast? Yes. Okay, awesome. Is it going to be like one of Abby's sentences with semicolons, or is it an overprepared, consummately overprepared, beautifully written English sentence? <laughs> I don't know that I would say that, but I'll do my best. <laughs> Uh, so, judging on inventory turnover, uh, Ford stock looks slightly more efficient than Tesla stock, as Ford has six days, Tesla has 20 days. Wow, that's really interesting. And we hadn't pre planned this, but Tesla is also arguably one of five companies the world needs right <laughs> now, which is where we're headed next. So, that was a perfect transitional element. Sarah, before I let you go, industry focus, I'd love to know what you're thinking about either with your next podcast or in the month ahead or so, where are you headed with industry, focus, energy, and industrials? Um, so, not to over-inform people, but this Thursday we're talking about Tesla earnings. Uh, so, they had a really interesting quarter, and we're going to kind of break that down. And then the following week, we're hopefully getting in a guest speaker to talk about the changes, the legislation that's coming through on infrastructure spending, which could be revolutionary for a lot of companies in the US. And there's particularly, there's been a buying up of a lot of infrastructure companies in preparation for this. So, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Fascinating. Well, really enjoy your work, Sarah. Thank you. All of the industry focused podcasts, we have Sarah Priestley. Uh, this week, but each of the days of the week has a different host with a recurrent industry or theme, and it's a delight to have you this time. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you. All right, and now, as promised at the close, let's review five stocks the world really needs right now. Now, that's a podcast. You can go back and listen to it. Since I'm proud of the work, feel free to go back. It was last February. You'll see February 2017, when we were talking about the world and trying to match 
stock picks to where the world was headed, which is arguably what I try to do every week on this podcast or in our work at Motley Fool Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers, but very explicitly a year ago, picking five stocks toward that. We're going to review them right now, really quick, because we're near the end of a fun show that had its center elsewhere. But here are the five companies in alphabetical order and how we are doing. Now, I want to mention that each of these was picked for the next four years. I was saying four more years at the time. So, this is just the end of year one. Uh, Let's see how they're doing. First of all, the S&P 500, our bogey, our competitor, our arch rival, what the academics tell you you can't beat. It would just be luck if you were to be beating the S&P 500 over any given period. The S&P 500 over the last year since that podcast up 16%. So each of these will be compared against the S&P 500. The first one up is Alkermes. Now, Alkermes is a company that made itself famous, buttered its bread on drug delivery systems, partnering with other drug companies and getting that drug from that drug company to your bloodstream or to your organ drug delivery systems, but began making its own drugs recently focused on the life of the mind, things like depression, opioid, the epidemic. Alkermes is working in that space. That's why I said the world really needs this stock right now. A year ago, the stock was at $56.89 at the close of the day. This podcast published. Happy to say it's up to 67 now. That's an 18% gain. So against the market 16, that's a plus two for ticker symbol ALKS. Stock the world really needs right now, number two was FactSet Data Systems. FactSet, in a world where there are a lot of questions about facts and what's factual and what's not, and talk about fake news, which was a recurring theme in this list of five companies, I really favor a company like FactSet Data Systems, which puts the facts on the table for lots of companies. You know, it's a lot easier when things are quantifiable, when you can put numbers to see what's fake and what's not. The things that are less quantifiable, the things that are based on words or suppositions, that's a lot more possible to fake. But fortunately, ticker symbol FDS working within the numerical field, bringing facts to the world every day. The stock was at $179.82. Today, it is tipping the scales right about 201 So, not a bad year for FDS, up 12%, but unfortunately, four percentage points behind the stock market over the course of that time. So, of my five picks here, this is the only loser to foreshadow where we're headed. Minus four. All right, stock the world really needs right now number three in alphabetical order. The ticker symbol is G O O G. The company is, of course, Alphabet. Now, Alphabet a year ago was at $818.98. Really happy to say it's just short of $1,100 as we tape here this week of February 2018. A year later, it's up 34%, more than doubling the market's 16% percent gain. So, a nice plus 18 in the win column for Alphabet. Alphabet, of course, the crown gem of Alphabet is Google. And I like businesses where you can use them to find out the truth. Now, I realize Google sometimes gets blamed, because if somebody writes fake news out there and you use Google to find it, they might be getting paid for the advertising behind that. But that is a real minority of most of what Google does on a daily basis worldwide. Google, as I said a year ago, its moonshots benefit humanity. This is a company, Alphabet, that is doing lots more than just Google. And it's a, I think it's a great company. In particular, I think it's probably the most innovative company of our time. And innovation is something I think the world will always need right now. So, really happy to see that performance by one of the most widely held companies in all of fooldom. 
Stock number four that the world really needs right now, I said a year ago, was the New York Times Company. And it's especially its digital offering becoming more and more popular, sometimes getting some criticism from people in the presidential administration, which arguably has worked to the New York Times' benefit. What I favor about the New York Times is that whatever you think of its politics or its brand, and I respect it, even though I don't find myself always agreeing with it, I like the efforts that they make to fact check and all the news that's fit to print. Again, while I may not agree with all of it, I respect the process by which the New York Times goes through and does what it does every day, increasingly digitally. And that's why I'm happy to say this stock, which was at $15.95 a year ago when we did the podcast, is today at 25 Of the five companies, this is the number one performer. NYT is the ticker symbol, up 57% over the last year. So that's a plus 41 in the win column. I'll total these all up right at the end. And finally, Stock number five that the world really needs right now. Sarah mentioned it briefly at the end of her presentation, and that would be Tesla. The ticker symbol is TSLA. The stock was at $279.76 a year ago as we closed out the podcast, and today it's up from 280 or so to 335. That's a gain of 20 percentage points. Now, of course, Tesla has made itself something that the world needs, not just through the production of its beautiful Model S cars or the Model X or the Model 3s that are increasingly starting to show up, but also has distinguished itself with Solar City and, in particular, the Gigafactory as a company that dropped the name Motors from its name a year or two ago. And now it's Tesla, and it represents a wonderful, progressive thinking about where the world's headed using technology to better our lives. So I think Tesla indeed has proven itself as a company that the world really needs right now. All right, so some numbers here at the end. We've been scoring. This has been a gamified podcast throughout. I I forgot to mention, at the end of those six terms, if you listened and are still listening to this podcast at the end of that, give yourself 37 points on top of what you were already scoring, just for sticking with us all the way through. And then my producer, Rick Engdahl, has suggested one additional scoring innovation, and that is, if you bought any of these five stocks reacting to last year's Five Stocks the World Really Needs Right Now podcast, go ahead and give yourself, Rick's calling it the golden snitch, go ahead and give yourself plus 150 points. So, tot up your scores and let us know how you scored on this week's podcast. Now, to close those five stocks that we just reviewed, again, each of them being compared to the market, the market was up 16%. These stocks were a plus 61 when you net their alpha together. What that really means is that each of them average outperforming the stock market by 12 percentage points. So, not a bad first year. This group averaging a 28% gain against the S&P 516. I don't want to, well, maybe I will humble brag. I'm not sure that I've ever once yet, this is really lucky, underperformed with any of my five stock samplers in the two and a half years of this podcast. So, really glad to see this list of five once again be beating the market and inspiring you and me to save more money and, darn it, get it invested in stocks the world really needs right now. After all, as I've often said, make your portfolio reflect your best vision for our future. And that's what you're doing, I hope, when you invest in companies like these or whatever you think are the stocks the world really needs right now. Well, that was a fun podcast. Thanks for joining with me and my talented special guest stars this week. Next week, it's mailbag. So send us your questions, rbi at fool.com or your comments. I love reading them. Rick and I read through all of them. We pick our favorites. We'll share them with you in our February mailbag next week. In the meantime, fool on. Fool.
As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.